There it is. All right. Just in time. I'll wait. So loud. Sorry, guys. All right. Uh, we are in Second Corinthians chapter seven ish. There's a couple things we'll say about chapter six before we move on. <laughs> um, are we recording up there, Josh? Or, so I don't need to worry about this guy here. Cool. All right. Okay. Um, before we begin, um, I'm just going to call in some spur of the moment. Um, w- would you say a prayer for us, Micah, please? Our God, our Father, we thank you so much for who you are. Um, we are so thankful that we can uh, be part of of your work, how you are doing wonderful things uh, here on earth, and, and we are uh, servants in your kingdom. Um, as we study your word, please help us to have open hearts, um, that, that we look to your intent, that we look to uh, your guidance, and not to, not to our own, uh, to guide our steps. Be with, be with all of us, in, and we're humbled to know that you, you see us uh, in, in all of our situations, and we give every, all the glory to you at all times. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, so we are in the second Corinthians, uh, finishing up chapter six and getting into chapter seven. We'll go ahead and read chapter seven in its entirety, but tonight we'll probably just do the first, uh, maybe seven, eight verses. Um, were there any thoughts, any questions about six, uh, before we move any further? There's a lot of, a lot of cool stuff happening in chapter six. Nothing. All right. I just appreciate uh, the comments that we had in our last class as to what what the Christian walk looks like, how we are uh, yoked to one another, how we, in essence, are yoked to Paul. Uh, that he he views that in a sense as as a yoking, and uh, what that what that looks like for us, being open, uh, being, being vulnerable, and, and taking off the filthiness and the holiness. And, and we see that um, that's not just a pick and choose of who I yoke myself with, but it's that we, we are laboring together and, uh, and the relationship with God's at stake, as we see in verses 16 through 18, that, that uh, this is tied in specifically with the covenant promise, promises of God. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we talked about, you know, you, we need to be yoked with someone who's going in the same direction as we are. So don't, don't yoke ourselves to someone who's going to pull us away from, from Christ, from, from the direction that we're heading. Um, and then absolutely, we're going to talk more about uh, 16 through 18 specifically, those, those promises, because that's how he starts chapter 7. Since we have these promises, it's what he's just discussed here at the end of chapter 6, and there's some, some really, uh, really beneficial things to talk about there. If there's nothing else, do we have a volunteer um, to read chapter 7 um, the 16 verses of chapter 7. Don't all fight over it here. <laughs> 
Oh, we've got a volunteer. Thank you, Russ. <clears throat> Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all affliction. In all our, in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I received even more, rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of the wrong, and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on, on, on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if, in, for if any... For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more towards you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Thank you, Russ. So what jumped out? In, in this section. We'll, we'll primarily deal with the first half, but if there's anything in the, in, in the chapter itself. What repeated words and phrases are we hearing? What, um, what sounds familiar? What jumps out to you? Wednesdays are always those days, right? We're exhausted, I get it. We've got one here. First of all, he starts with therefore. Yes. Which means because of what I just said before, yep. because of all of these promises mm -hmm. that was given to us in chapter 6, um, he said, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement, from the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
So he's saying, because God has given us all of these promises, now on the flip side, because of that, we need to cleanse ourselves from all defilement and walk in the ways that he's laid out for us. Yeah. There's some really, really cool, really powerful imagery that he's alluding to there. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Alan? I thought it was a wonderful thing in verse 3 there. It says to die together and to live together. What a wonderful thing we could think of ourselves as a church and a body together to to die together, to live together. You know, we're not facing what they face, but the time may come. And will we stand with each other and, and live and die in that love and making yeah. room in, in our hearts for each other? Yeah, and, and Paul was willing to do that. Um, the, the, the people that I've, I've talked to about 2 Corinthians have said they like this one uh, maybe more than most of Paul's other letters, if we can have a favorite, if that's allowed. And I think it's because of chapters like this one. We see so much emotion in, in Paul right now. He is really, uh, really pulling back the curtain and, and telling them how he's feeling, which is something that in other parts of the Bible... It, it's, it's simply an account of an event. We don't necessarily get that insight into how the people were feeling at the moment. And here we do, and it's, it's powerful and, and very helpful. Um, yeah, Bob. So prior chapters have been tough, just a lot of tough stuff. And this, you see joy and encouragement and happiness, and, it, and it's like getting over that hump, mm. getting over the hill. And it was such a breath of fresh air after so much tough stuff. Right. I mean, First Corinthians and up to this point. Right. And if, so you're saying a breath of fresh air for you as the reader? Yeah. Yeah. And for Paul. Yeah. And for Paul and for Titus. And, you know, they, they've been waiting. They've been waiting to hear how the Corinthians are going to respond to all of this tough stuff. Are they going to change? Are they going to allow themselves to, uh, to be humbled and to make necessary change? or not, and which way are they going to go? And, and we're, we're given insight in here that um, their, their godly sorrow, Russ, I appreciated your translation, uh, sorrow according to the will of God. Uh, the ESV simply says godly sorrow, but it, it's a sorrow that is, is intended by God. It's the kind of sorrow that elicits change. Um, they, have, they have now uh, made steps to correct and, and really respond the way that they should. And yeah, what a, what a breath of fresh air. Was there another one? So let's, let's take uh, verse one here. And the question that I had uh, thrown out to you all uh, yesterday, what are the promises that Paul refers to? He says, therefore, since we have these promises, what promises specifically is he referring to? Well, I think this goes back to verses 16 through 18. And again, just looking at the very last one, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. It's a relationship with God mm -hmm. that's up for grabs mm -hmm. that we have to fight for. And what a promise. Mm -hmm. What a promise. The creator of everything wants to treat us as his children and be that father figure to us, not the imperfect fathers that, that we know here on earth, but the, the, the perfect father, and he's offering that to us. What a promise. There's more in here too. 
What are some of the others? Oh, we've got one right here. <clears throat> he says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them. Mm -hmm. Wow. How comforting is it to know that God is walking with me? And why? Like, why is that such a comfort? Because I don't have to fear um, Satan and him overcoming me, um, though he will try. Um, knowing that who he is, that he is walking with me, what a privilege for me. Right. Wow. Right. So this promise, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. What, what kind of imagery is that supposed to make us think of? I, I think there's, there's not just one right answer here, but what comes to mind, Bob? The garden. Okay. The very beginning. The uh, you know, when he made man and woman and... They walked with God. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was with them. You know, they didn't have to search him out. He was there with them. Yeah. And that is a relationship that God has been actively working to restore since that time. Right? And he has been interacting with his uh, creation since then in a variety of ways. Um. So yeah, the idea of him walking with us, he's now offering that again, promising that. Yes, Phil. Yeah, and I think it's quoting from Exodus 25. Yes. Or Exodus in general, but Exodus 25, 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. And then Exodus 29, 45. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them, I am the Lord their God. And the whole context there is the tabernacle, mm -hmm. establishing the tabernacle and how he would dwell among them, how that was a holy place set apart for uh, his glory. Yeah. And where was the tabernacle positioned when Israel would, would find a spot, not find a spot, they would be led to a spot, where was the tabernacle? right in the center of all of them, right? Some of the benefits of having God's presence literally in the middle of their camp. You think about some of the benefits of literally having God there. He led them. He, he was their guide through the wilderness so that when the cloud lifted or the fire lifted, he would take them to where they would find uh, provision and rest. But that tabernacle also was where Moses would go to receive information. It's where the people would go when they would sin and offer their sacrifices. So wisdom, uh, forgiveness, uh, all of these things were offered because God's presence was there among them. In fact, when the people sinned um, at the foot of Mount Sinai, God actually threatened to remove that. Do you remember he said, I'm not going to go with these people. And Moses said, if you won't be among us, then go ahead and kill me. I, like, we're not going to go the rest of the way. We need you with us. And so God 
God again um, d- dwelled among his people. And he's offering that to us. And I mean, we could spend all of, I think all of tonight on verse one here, because the tabernacle eventually became what? Where was it that God allowed his presence to dwell? In the temple. And the temple was a building. It was constructed in Jerusalem, but that's not where God's temple is now anymore. Where is it today? It's in us. And so where is God's presence? It's among his people. And he's saying, I'm, I'm going to offer you the same benefits that I offered my, my people in Israel. It's that wisdom and that guidance and that forgiveness and that insight because I, I want to be that for you. And so Paul says, since we have these promises, how incredible is that? What therefore should be our response? And it was already, it was already mentioned. What needed to happen to the temple when on occasion they brought in idolatrous things and ruined that sanctuary, what needed to happen before sacrifices to God could occur. It needed to be cleansed. They needed to get all of that out. And so he says, in the same way, we need to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Everything about us, the things that we do and the things that we think, because I can sin against my brother without actually doing anything. I can have bitterness in my heart that needs to get cleansed out. He said, cleanse all of that out. Uh, My translation says, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What does that mean? Oh, you were, I don't know, you were positioning like you were getting ready to, no, you don't want to have it. I can, I can just. I find comfort that this, this is a call to holiness and we're called to, to be made complete. This completion doesn't happen overnight. Sure. It, it is a growing process. We are, we are constantly allowing Christ to cleanse us more and more, continually yes. being molded uh, into, into his likeness. And, and we're going to see later on in chapters 8 and 9 that he has this same call to them in the collection, bring it to completion, mm-hmm. continue uh, working, don't give up, don't give up. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, this is something that we need to daily choose to do, right? It's not like I can say, well, my sins were forgiven and I'm, you know, nothing will ever enter my mind that's contrary to God ever again. Well, we know that's not true. And so we need, we need to make the conscious effort to rely on his grace and his mercy and the forgiveness that he offers and, and keep that temple, his dwelling place, clean. Yes, Alan. Bringing this to a completion of holiness in the fear of God, you yes. know, people behold the goodness and severity of God. I think so many times in the religious world, people just concentrate so much on the love, which is so abounding, that they don't grasp how they ought to fear. Fear the severity of God for, you know, and we ought to be on, on our knees praying that we, we are acceptable and not 
in, incomplete. Yeah. Because of that. Yeah. Um, this, this question actually recently got brought up. Uh, we've been studying with a, a handful of young people uh, through the book of Acts. And uh, the question was brought up, um, are we supposed to be scared of God? Uh, I think it came up when we were talking about Ananias and Sapphira. You know, are we supposed to be scared of God? What's the answer? Yes and no. How, how is that? How is that? Well, there are a variety of passages. We're not going to go through all of them. But th this, this passage is trying to get us to think of Exodus, right? Were the people scared of God in Exodus? Yes, right? He appeared on the mountain and they told Moses, you talk to him. We don't want to hear from him. You talk to him and then you come and tell us what he said. There was a terror of God and yet that God wanted a relationship with them. That God loved them and did unbelievable things in order to make that relationship possible. And we see throughout scripture People responding to God. You think about when Isaiah witnessed God and the heavenly creatures around him, and his response was, I am undone. I am lost. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm among a people of unclean lips, and people like that can't be in God's presence. He'll destroy people like that. But what did God do for him? God made a way, brought a coal from the altar, placed it on his tongue, and made a way so that the fear didn't have to exist anymore. And we read this, the same thing. Um, I mean, yeah, there's another great example. In Revelation 1, the resurrected Christ appears to John. John knows who this person is. He saw him. He even saw him raised from the dead, but now he's seeing him in a very different kind of way with eyes like fire and a sword from his mouth, and John lays down, plays dead. But the first thing that Jesus says to him is, don't be afraid. It is a natural response to fear someone with that kind of power. But Jesus says, look, you, you don't have to be afraid. Why? First John is an exceptional book to deal with a lot of these things, but First John says that true love casts out fear. That if we truly love God and we do his will, if we've submitted ourselves to him, I don't have to be afraid of him because he's a God that, that wants everyone to come to him. And so this desire to cleanse ourselves, to bring holiness to completion, understanding, as Hebrews 10 tells us, that if we choose not to submit to him, if we go on sinning deliberately, what is there? There's a fearful expectation of judgment. An understanding that if I'm willing to submit myself to him and allow him to cleanse me and do, do, do what, what he has required of me, begging his forgiveness when I stumble, because I do, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid. All right, we did one verse. <laughs> Any thoughts on that? I, I just get really, really excited about it. We've got one up here with, with Bob. 
uh, just heard one time uh, someone describe this kind of fear and say it's it's not the kind of fear that makes you run away. It's the kind of fear that makes you run toward. Mm. So just thinking noodle on that a little bit. It, the right kind of fear, godly fear, draws you to him. It doesn't repel you. Yeah. It is a power. God is a power that I want to be aligned with, not opposed to. And if, by accepting what his son did for me, I align myself with him, that's not a power to be feared. It's a power to rejoice in and celebrate in, right? But if, by my own choices, I make my life something in opposition to him, then I ought to be terrified. I ought to be terrified. Yes, Josh. Yes, I, I agree with all of this. Um, the fact that we can um, have fearful reverence for him, but still be drawn near to him as all, all that glory goes to God, right? He could have preserved our fear in us by being inconsistent and unpredictable, mm. but instead he converted our fear into, uh, obviously we reverence him because of who he is and his holiness and his power and all those things, his purity, but he invites us to that party by providing a way for us to partake in that same holiness and partake in that same purity. And he encourages us to approach sin the way he does. And he makes it possible for us to do that. And again, you said he wants a relationship with us. Well, that means we don't have to be afraid of him. Yeah. We can be with him yeah. and he with us. Yeah. It's not a perfect analogy at all. Um, I have a fear of deep water. I was swimming in an ocean once, and my brother Darren made the comment, you know, there's room enough for a whole shark to fit under there. I have not felt comfortable swimming in oceans since then. I have a healthy fear of open water. But not everyone does. How are they able to overcome that fear? Because they understand it is a power that can kill you, if not respected. Does it make the thing evil? No. And so if I recognize that God has the power to destroy me, but if I respect him, if I see him and know him for what he truly is, I, I don't have to be afraid of that. Yeah. Yeah, the, the fear thing is, it's also useful for loyalty. Um, if you ever have to take a stand for him on his behalf as a disciple, um, I'm thinking of Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'll keep going to these two. Um, your fear of God at that moment will, will preserve you. Mm -hmm. And it's so uh, foolish. I assume it's foolish to the world. It's so backwards. But that's the fear that I mean when I shake, when I nod my head yes, that um, what can man do? Yeah. Yeah. There's another one. Yeah, Deborah. Um, I keep thinking of Ephesians while we're talking about this. I think just because I'm in a study on Ephesians also. Mm -hmm. um, so chapter 1 and 2, I mean, I'm really struck in chapter 1 how it talks about that power working toward us, you know, and through us. And then even in um, chapter 2 also about us being the temple, being built into the temple. Mm -hmm. And again, just thinking about that power working through us, how, how we are filled with the Spirit and kind of that power of Him <laughs> I think about the I think about the spirit filling the temple and how there's there's then no space for this other stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So when we are filled with him and that power working through us, it's not about 
me having to conquer these things, right? It's the fruit of the spirit kind of coming through. So I don't know. It's just been, I've been thinking about that a lot as you've talked about that. Yeah. Well, and Ephesians also does the family relationship as well, because it talks about adoption as sons. And, you know, so there's, there's a lot of great tie-ins there to Ephesians. Yep. You know, while he's got these promises, you know, poised before us, there, there's a lot of comfort in what he says afterwards. Mm-hmm. Are you uh, trying to segue us, Bob? I appreciate that. Okay. Let it, well, in this verse, verse 1, let us cleanse ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's something we can do. It's not something that's impossible. I think, I'm afraid that some of the translations, when it talks about holiness, later in that verse, uh, perfecting holiness. Well, like I think some translations use that phrase. I'm not perfect. Right. No way I can be perfect. But it says, like in the ESV, bringing holiness to completion. I can finish a task. That's something I can do by cleansing ourselves. Paul includes him and us in that. So that is something that is doable. Yeah. It's, it's not something unreachable like we sometimes think so many things are. Right. And, and we understand it's not something I can do by my own power or all by myself, right? Uh, far from it. But the idea, uh, he doesn't say, let him therefore cleanse you. He's, he's, he's telling them to do this thing, uh, to make the decision, as Jesus said throughout his ministry, to, to cleanse out those things, to cleanse out those things from your life and then uh, fill it with, with the things of God. Um, we can make those choices. Um, we don't do it solely by our own strength, um, but we do make a decision um, to allow him to dwell in us. And so with that idea of uh, allowing God to be in us, we're making room for him. Um, uh, he makes this statement, again, the ESV says, make room in your hearts for us. Uh, does anyone else's translations leave out the in our hearts or in your hearts? Because apparently in the Greek, he simply says, make room for us. And so when, when I first read that, it made me hearken back to verses 11 and, and verse 13 of chapter 6. He's saying, our hearts are open, so open your hearts. Um, but here, I, I, think, I think it's actually more of a connection to verse 1 you're making, you're making room for the things of God so that God's spirit can be in you as his new temple. He wants to dwell with you. Make room for us. You know, we are the ministers of, of this, uh, this gospel. Um, we, are, we are the ones, Paul's trying to remind them, we are the ones who brought it to you, this good news. And there are some among them who are trying to, trying to push Paul out of the way, diminish his authority, uh, throw accusations at him, and, and Paul is saying, "No, don't. You, you need to make room for us. Um, we need to. We need to be in in your hearts as well." And it and it seems to uh, there in the rest of, of verse two, um, answering some of these accusations. He says, "We have wronged no one, regardless of what you might hear or have been told. We haven't wronged anybody. We haven't corrupted anyone." We haven't taken advantage of anyone. And that third one, 
it does seem to imply that there's a thought that Paul is financially, he's being accused of potentially financially taking advantage. He's collecting all this money from all of these churches. What's he actually doing with that is perhaps an, an accusation being thrown at Paul. And he's saying, look, we, we ta- we've taken advantage of no one. So regardless of what you might, might think or what others may be telling you, um, this is not who we are. And he kind of, uh, the beginning of three there, it, it almost seems like he's saying, I, I don't mean to go back into this. He's already addressed some of these things previous. I, I don't say this to condemn you. We've already talked about what you've been told and who I really am, what my ministry is really about. I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to live together and, and, and I'm sorry, to die together and to live together um, Why does Paul follow up? Uh, what does Paul follow up with um, when he asks to make room for us? What does he follow up with, and why would he find that to be necessary? Why bring up these potential accusations that's, that's been brought against him? Josh? I think it's a natural thing. If someone wrongs us, there's a sense in which we close them out of our hearts. We don't want anything to do with them. We try to avoid them, maybe literally. Um, If that person then comes and repents, or we realize that, well, the way they wronged me was all in my mind, you know, any number of ways that it can shake out. I need to remember sometimes to open my heart back up to that person instead of holding on to what I once thought or once felt or, you know, the negative emotions that go along with that. Yeah, because if I feel those negative emotions towards that individual, am I going to be inclined to listen to what they say? So he's saying there, there's a rift that someone has created between you and me, and I, I'm not going to be able to tell you the rest of what I intend to tell you if you're still hanging on to these, these accusations that have been made. And I think that points back to what he said in verse 1. Let us cleanse ourselves. So he's bringing it up again because this might be some, some leftover mm. um, feelings. So he's yeah. clearing the air. Yeah, I, I like think, that. He's, yeah. I just think that goes back to what he said in chapter 1, cleansing. Right. This is only, if you all continue to, to listen to these and, and even believe these accusations, this is going to hinder, this is going to continue to hinder our relationship. Uh, yes, Alan. He was dealing with this in Acts 20 and 33 and following. He said, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. Then I like verse 35, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Okay, yeah, so you're referring to Acts 20. Uh, he's talking to the Ephesian elders, and it does seem that the same kind of uh, service that he rendered to Corinth by not requiring any money from them, it seems that potentially he did the same thing there in Ephesus. Um, he said, I was willing to work, work with my own hands to pay for for the service that I rendered to you. That seems to be typical of Paul. So how, how ridiculous then is it that someone's accusing Paul, it seems, of, um, 
of taking advantage, uh, potentially financially taking advantage of them. Did I see another hand? Um, so Paul spoke of this, this great uh, affliction and anguish of heart that he experienced in writing this previous letter to them and this, this restlessness that he had while he was waiting to hear back from Titus. This is the rest of the story that we started to get back in chapter 2. Chapter two, the first few verses there, he started to kind of say, I was waiting for Titus, and when he came, and then uh, some would say there's basically been a parenthetical from verse two of chapter, I'm sorry, verse four of chapter two until now. Now he's completing the sentence. I don't know if that's exactly what, but he's telling us the rest of the story. Not just that Titus arrived, but what message did Titus bring? And what was, what was the effect? We, we could look at the big picture because that there's good news and then there's some so-so news and maybe some not good news uh, in all this. But, but what he chooses to emphasize right here is um, the rejoicing that Titus has regarding their response to Paul's message. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's... Uh, that's the overall response that, he, that he's praising them for. He had every confidence that they would res- respond in that way. Yeah. So. And then he starts using this word that we heard a whole bunch uh, back in chapter one. What's the word? Comfort. Comfort. Again and again and again. And who was comforted? He was comforted to hear that the Corinthians had responded in a godly way. But Titus was comforted because Titus had to be the bearer of potential, bearer of bad news. He's going to Corinth and he's not sure what kind of message he's going to have to carry back to Paul. He's almost wondering if, they, if they've got a, perhaps, he's, if they've got a beef with Paul, I'm coming on his behalf. I'm going to go to Corinth. How are they going to treat me? And yet, how did they treat Titus? They brought him much joy, and he was glad to be among them when he saw their response. He saw their godly sorrow, their zealousness for Paul. So it brought Titus comfort. Paul was comforted by the Corinthians' response. He was doubly comforted to see the effect it had on his brother Titus. You see what repentance does, what true godly repentance does it is, it is a weight off of not only the shoulders of the one needing the repentance, but it's a weight off of everyone who's been, Lord willing, working with that person. And what joy and comfort that brings when we see a brother or sister uh, respond in this way. Any thoughts specifically about, it's kind of an overarching of the rest of the chapter, but we'll... We'll dig in a little bit more. You can, you can see that um, Paul is comforted um, from, from the pressures that he is facing. It describes uh, the, the fightings without and the fears within. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we sing of that kind of stuff. Um, just as I am though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, 
fightings and fears within, without. Mm. Oh, and what do we do? What do we do with those pressures? Oh, Lamb of God, I come, I come. I, I. He turns to God and he finds strength, that fort of, of comfort. And yeah. so... Um, that that just speak, speaks volumes that that he's comforted by Titus. Not that Titus is my buddy, and I'm so glad that he finally came. If I were one of the Corinthians, I would hear this message in chapter seven and say, "You know what? He was comforted by the coming of Titus because he was concerned about me. Mm-hmm. He cares about me. Mm-hmm. If if he if he just said, I was glad that." Uh, Titus showed up and just leaves it that he, he gets that comfort from how they allowed the Holy Spirit to work in them and their response to the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, uh, I think a sub point that can be drawn from this passage, you just try to put yourself in the shoes of each of these groups, right? You've got the Corinthians, you've got Titus, you've got Paul. Paul was intending to meet up with Titus and he, he was waiting for him and he didn't know where he was. He was concerned about the message that he would get when Titus finally showed up. But think about the incredible effect that we as groups of Christians can have on ministers of the gospel by our response to it. These men are putting forth great effort to present the message, and sometimes it's hard to hear, but think of the great service they did to Titus by hearing the hard words and making the necessary change so that Titus was emboldened and and joyful and was given comfort. What kind of responses can we give to God's workers today when they come and present us messages? Even if they come and present messages that are hard to hear, Think of the joy and the comfort we can give to them that then, we, we see it here, that then multiplies when they're able to share that with others. Um, how are we responding to, to ministers of God? Uh, Bob? Josh? Both of us, actually. Okay. <laughs> I, I think, for me, reading verse 4 where it says that Paul was encouraged, that's a really strong kick in the pants for me because my response to God's will impacts people around me. I could either encourage people by my actions or worse, I could discourage people. Hmm. And that impacts people in ways that we may not be able to quantify. Paul is away from them and receiving news, and if that news was the exact opposite of what it was, how would that discouragement then impact his ability to work where he is? Or how would that change his response to them? Uh, We have a responsibility to obey God's will, but it's not just us that we're affecting Yes, we're affecting ourselves and we're affecting our relationship with him, but we're also impacting those around us. Yeah. I mean, Paul used the phrase several times, um, for fear that I labored in vain, right? I put in all of this work 
to bring you to Christ, to bring the good news to you, and you responded, and now after all this time, your actions may be making that work of a vain effort. And yeah, how dejected. Would he then be discouraged to try that in another city? Well, look at all the effort and time I put into Corinth, and there's nothing to show for that. But the reverse is also true. Look at all the time and effort I put into Corinth, and they were struggling, and they had all of these issues, and they responded well, and they allowed God to change them, you know, and took advantage of this wisdom, and wow, what, what that must have done for him. Yes, Bob? We often have a problem <clears throat> trying to understand how God works in our lives. Verses 6 and 7, there's a whole lot of comfort there. Mm-hmm. And where does it say that the comfort starts? God. Mm-hmm. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us. And then he talks about all these different ways that they were comforted by Titus coming, by the reaction of the, the Corinthians, by what everybody was doing was very comforting. Mm-hmm. And so God does work in our lives. He's the God of all comfort. That's one way in which he does work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we'll talk more in verses 8 through 16 on Sunday that goes into much more detail about their response. He really describes it. And I, and I think it's really helpful to show us what, what godly sorrow is supposed to look like, what repentance is supposed to look like. But in verse 7, he does mention three things that Titus told Paul about the Corinthians. He mentioned, he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. What does he mean by those? What, what, does, that, what does that potentially mean? I think it could mean a couple of different things, but... They're longing for what? For whom? He wasn't going to be afraid to come see them. They were wanting him to come. They were longing for him. They were mourning because of, you know, they realized that even though he had to say what he had to say, and it may have been hurtful, that's in the, the next section there, mm-hmm. but um, they responded they, with godly mourning. And so they were, would have had to been sorry on how they had impacted him. Um, and then also the last part of it, their zeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're behind him 100%. They're supporting him now. They're, they're not fighting against him like they were before. And so I, maybe yeah. that's what those three terms are. Yeah, and so it's, it's a zeal for me, Paul says, right? So now, now I know you've got my back. It's a zealousness now for Paul, which would be such a great encouragement. It could also mean that they were longing for God and that they were mourning for their sin. Yes. Yeah, and like I said, I, I think there's several different ways we could, we could understand. Um, 
and especially when we get into the second part of the chapter, I think we're going to see all of those things, right? They clearly had, some translations say, a bitter remorse instead of mourning. This apparently is the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 2 when all of the, the babies were killed in Bethlehem. And it quotes that passage from the Old, um, the Old Testament that Rachel mourning for her children. Great bitter remorse and grief. And that is what the Corinthians were feeling when they received this, this message. Yes. Uh, going back to Bob's uh, comment, it, it really stands out that it's your longing, your mourning, and your zeal. It, not just you become zealous, you become back on fire, you want to please God, you want to, you want to trust him and, and renew, rekindle your relationship with him. It's your zeal for me. And, and um, the temptation could be there to say, you know what? I heard that message. I can be convicted to, to start anew with my relationship with God, but I'm not going to have anything to do with, with that brother over there. Mm. Just, just the way um, that, the, that they treated me, that they, they brought it up. I'm thankful that they brought it up, but I just, I'm just not going to deal with them anymore. Um, do I, do I open my heart and make room for my brother? Um, that, that's what I, that's what I'm called to do. And, and, and you see that yoking continually in here, that, that, that this zeal, um, it's on fire for that relationship with, with one another, the body mm-hmm. of Christ ought to be on fire in connection with one another. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so Paul, uh, well, I don't want to go into it except bell's going to ring any time. Um, and there it is. I was going to say something really profound, but <laughs> that's all. Um, so we will do verses 8 through 16, Lord willing, on Sunday. Uh, thank you all.